I wanted to start out with a reading from Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the words of the teacher, uh, the, the word teacher in Hebrew is Kohelet, and Kohelet is the, that's the Hebrew name for the book. So who Kohelet is, we'll talk about in a minute. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless like a baby's babbling. Um, I want to start by reading a devotional. There aren't that many sermons and devotionals from Ecclesiastes. Um, perhaps you can imagine why. Um, but here's one. Uh, this is from the Mockingbird devotional, Daily Grace, if you're familiar with Mockingbird Ministries. Uh, no one has expressed the inner logic of the book of Ecclesiastes better than French novelist Georges Bernanos. In order to be prepared to hope, he says, in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. This is what Solomon is going to do for us. The teacher, which is Solomon himself, declares his conclusion from the beginning. Everything we do is hebel, that's the Hebrew word. It means meaningless in the King James and RSV. Vanity, it means fleeting, absurd, empty, frustrating, pointless, vain. Then for 12 chapters, he calls it out. He's been there, done that, seen it all, seen it crash and burn, got the t-shirt. Fame, fortune, achievement, power, pleasure, work, and wisdom. We seek eternity in heaps of ash, and we never lay hold of it. Under the sun, in various places in Ecclesiastes, is a phrase that means under the aspect of temporality, under time, within the imminent frame, without reference to God, and after the fall. Under the sun, nothing is new, everything is old, and dying and passing away. The Christian religion, C.S. Lewis said, does not begin in comfort, it begins in dismay. And it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. We need no ha have no fear of missing out in this life. We are all on the same sliding board and a common destiny, as it says in chapter 9, verse 2, awaits us at the bottom of the ride, which is death. Solomon reminds us, no, he relentlessly pushes our face in it, that life may be enjoyed, but it can never be fully grasped. Yet we yearn for eternity. God has placed it in our hearts, as it says in chapter 3, and we glimpse eternity as through a keyhole. We sense that this life is only a vestibule, the finite entryway to an infinite reality beyond. Prisoners in time, we are bent, broken, and bewildered. God's plans in eternity are not only beyond our control, they escape our understanding. I have reached the age where there are fewer days ahead than there are behind. I still have plans and dreams and desires, ambitions of achievement and success. I can't help it. None of us can. 
but I will not make a dent in the universe. Solomon achieved an empire and became a broken man. It was a necessary brokenness and a difficult comfort. At the end, he remembered God at the last chapter, who was always there and waiting. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will tell us that the world, this world, the world bounded by birth and death, is never enough. Um, Not to be confused with the James Bond movie, The World is Not Enough, (coughs) whose plot I forget, but they're all the same anyway, aren't they? Um, Never enough to bring lasting happiness, fulfillment, or meaning. Never enough to satisfy the longing in our hearts for eternity and eternal relationship. Never enough to save us from death. His words are going to be jarring, some of them, and his teaching is disconcerting. We will find much of what Solomon says uncomfortable, uh, maybe dismaying. That's intentional on his part. But don't shoot me, I'm I'm only the messenger. Even the Apostle Paul says something that resonates with the message of Ecclesiastes when he writes in Ephesians 3.8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. The Greek word is skubalon, which means garbage, trash, and even manure. I consider them dung in the colorful King James language, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And James says something similar in chapter 4, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, I like to think, and I do believe, that James had Ecclesiastes in mind when he wrote that. Uh, But the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not just cynical ruminations of a world-weary king. It is the Word of God. So what's it doing in there? And its message is essential for our understanding the world, this fallen world as it really is and not how we devoutly may wish it to be. We need this understanding to help us navigate through this life. This is a fallen world. And if we don't take that into account... Uh, whatever else you may achieve in life, your life will be a failure if you don't take the fall into account. Now that makes wisdom, uh, that makes Ecclesiastes wisdom literature, but we also need Ecclesiastes because it lays bare the truth of our situation in life and how desperately we need to be rescued from meaninglessness and death. Um, I had a conversion experience when I was in college And to make a very long story, very, very long story, very, very short, even before I read the book of Ecclesiastes, 
or read any existentialist, I had an existentialist interpretation of my conversion. It was though Jesus Christ said to me, I am the meaning in life that you have been looking for. Do you want this? Yes or no? So Jesus does rescue us from meaningless and, of course, death. That makes Ecclesiastes a preamble and a preparation for the gospel, a necessary one. So we'll be looking uh, at Ecclesiastes for the next six sessions, including this one. And then we'll look at uh, the follow-up letter, the Song of Solomon. So we'll let Solomon lead us on a path that is actually well-worn. There are precursors in ancient Near Eastern literature to Ecclesiastes. Um, Some of them are really cynical, and some of them are just sort of morose. But they all focus on this idea of the futility and frustration of life as it is. But this is often forgotten or ignored or dismissed, particularly in a culture where achieving your dreams and expressing your individualism and believing in, in success above everything uh, makes us forget what life is actually supposed to be about. So today we'll look at introductory matters and the background of the book. Uh, Specifically, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and when did he write it? I won't spend a lot of time on that, uh, but it's important. Why did Solomon write this book and who did he write it for? We're going to look at key words and phrases. I've already mentioned one, hebel, which means is translated meaningless in the NIV, New International Version. Um, and, and phrases, specific phrases that are crucial unlocking the meaning of the text, And key themes, as with Proverbs and Joes, we really don't have enough time to do a verse-by-verse study. Uh, So we'll be unwrapping Solomon's key themes and see how they flow from one to the other, leading us where Solomon wants us to go. So uh, I've already referred to the author as Solomon several times, uh, referring him as the author to Ecclesiastes. But this attribution is controversial. Uh, there are even many, uh, I'll just say, conservative scholars, people who take the inspiration of Scripture seriously, who dispute this. And it's true that Solomon's name does not appear anywhere as the author. Uh, Some Old Testament scholars argue that Solomon couldn't possibly be the author, and I'm not going to rehearse all they have to say. That's kind of tedious academically, and besides, they're wrong anyway. I will present a few arguments that persuade me that the traditional ascription of Ecclesiastes to Solomon is correct. And I promise I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important if I'm going to continue to refer to Solomon as the author, you need to know why. And I am going to continue to refer to him, and I think it's persuasive that he is. So much of what I will be sharing about uh, Solomon as the author, I've gleaned from Old Testament scholar Dr. Dwayne's Garrett commentary on Ecclesiastes which is academic but still accessible if you're interested in a good academic commentary on Ecclesiastes. Uh, Dr. Garrett's in the New American Commentary is excellent. Uh, So he's not named. I believe that there are many indicators that actually 
point to Solomon as the author in the area of linguistic evidence, literary evidence, and historical and internal evidence, historical markers within the text itself. So perhaps uh, the most important supposed linguistic evidence against Solomonic authorship is actually very weak. And this is the argument that the language of the book, the Hebrew, presents a later post-exilic development of the Hebrew language much later than Solomon. This is not totally made up. Um, there's, there's some indications of peculiarities in the text. It's unique. It does have idiosyncrasies uh, in the Hebrew compared to the rest of the Old Testament. But as Dr. Garrett points out, our knowledge of the particulars of the history of Hebrew language is quite limited. In other words, we're saying we can tell from the history of the Hebrew language that this is actually written late when we don't actually know all that much about the history of the English language, not like we know about the history of the English language. Hebrew, of course, goes back thousands of years earlier. The evidence we do have indicates that Ecclesiastes could not have come from the post-exilic period. And that's all I'll say about number one. Uh, Another argument against Solomon and the category of literary evidence is the theory that various editors and a frame narrator created the book. This is supposedly indicated by reference to the teacher in the third person. You know, the teacher did this, the teacher said this. In verse, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 7, 27, and chapter 12, verse 8. So this is also weak. There are actually three levels of discourse. If you read it, you've got to keep it in mind if you want to fully understand. It's, it's like in the Song of Solomon, there's a lover, a beloved, and... <laughs> And, and kind of a chorus, uh, the other people speaking and encouraging the lover and the beloved. In Ecclesiastes, the first level is the third person references to the teacher that I just mentioned. The second level is like Proverbs. It's universal didactic wisdom sayings. Essentially, it is wisdom speaking in these passages. The third level is the author sometimes calling himself the teacher sharing his experience and thoughts with us directly in the first person. You know, I, the teacher, I did this, I saw this, I accomplished this, I felt this, and I'm saying this about it. Uh, But as Garrett points out, all the levels of narration are a matter of literary technique. I've never understood why modern interpreters can't see that it makes perfectly good sense from a literary technique perspective, for example, not consider the second chapter of Genesis a second creation story. It's obviously a flashback. And Ecclesiastes is not an accumulation of different writers. It's one very skilled writer coming up with a unity that you probably couldn't come up with if it was just a collection of bits and pieces over hundreds or thousands of years. So uh, my conclusion... um, is that Solomon wrote it as far as literary technique is concerned. Finally, although Solomon is not mentioned by name in Ecclesiastes, the historical descriptions in the book, such as in chapter 1, 12, and 13, I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem, king over Israel and Jerusalem. And elsewhere he says, and, you know, I became greater than anybody else in Jerusalem before me. There's, there's, there's even an argument that says, well, you know, what other kings were? There was only one other, two other kings before him. Yeah, but Jerusalem was a city a long time before the Israelites. And remember, Melchizedek was actually the king of 
Jerusalem at one time. So that makes sense. Um, this is a person who also studied and explored wisdom uh, in all that is done under the sun. These descriptions best fit the descriptions of Solomon we find elsewhere in the Old Testament. So my conclusion, if it looks like Solomon and talks like Solomon, and everybody back then said it was Solomon, which is one of the reasons it got into the canon in the first place, probably it's Solomon. So I'm going to say Solomon um, because I think that's who wrote it, even though that's disputed. So I know I went through that really fast, and if you have any questions, uh, we'll do that at the end. So Solomon likely wrote Ecclesiastes in his old age when he had gained some perspective on the mistakes he'd made in his life and kingly reign. Um, this is speculation, but that's what I believe, and I, that's consonant with the scripture as it's written. Although it doesn't say Solomon, of course, drifted away because of all the diplomatic marriages with international wives he had. He let them worship other gods, and sometimes he went along with it. And that, of course, led to problems. Uh, I think he regretted this, and then he wrote Ecclesiastes. Solomon died around 930 B.C., so it was written sometime a little before that. Um, right. So because of its jarring nature and unique perspective, the canonicity of Ecclesiastes has been argued about in both Judaism and early Christianity. And the question of how the Jews view the canonicity of the Old Testament is, again, an extremely lengthy academic debate. And, and again, I'm not going to go into that. But at least by the time of Jesus Christ, all the books we know of as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, were considered canonical um, in, in whatever sense the Jewish people would say that. They, would just, they used, uh, it defiles the hands, which means exactly the opposite of what we think it with. A writing that defiled the hands was authoritative scripture. Because if you touched it and you're unholy, well, you, you're, you've defiled yourself. Um, so anyway, it was considered canonical, uh, authoritative scripture, at least by the time of Christ, entertained as such by the so-called Jewish Council of Jamnia in AD 90. Now, that, what that is was actually controversial, too, although, you know... I ran out of space at the bottom, so let me explain. This was most likely a group of rabbinic meetings rather than like a single major council, like the Council of Nicaea. These meetings did not decide which writings were authoritative scripture. That was already done. But the status of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon were discussed, and their divine inspiration was affirmed. And one of the reasons was it affirmed is because they believed Solomon wrote it. So why did Solomon write this book? Uh, who did he write it for? From the perspective of one who had seen and done it all, seriously. You know, if you think wealth is going to make you happy, well, Solomon been there, done that. You think achievement, major architectural uh, building, been there, done that. You think having an empire and administrating a large part of the ancient world is going to make you happy, uh, been there, done that. So from the perspective of one who has seen and done it all, Solomon confronts us with the frustration and sense of futility we will all experience in this fallen world. And nonetheless, we still live in a culture where the idea of the pop idol who has it all 
is considered the emblem or paradigm of happiness. But then you read the lives of these people or you even just, you know, you click on some clickbait and you find out they're actually pretty miserable a lot, just, just like the rest of us, you know. Um, <laughs> or even more so, um, neither money nor extreme poverty will make you happy. His purpose, uh, Solomon's purpose, is to drive readers not to the self, but to God as the only giver of permanent worth, as uh, Dwayne Garrett puts it. So who was his original audience? Who did he write this for? Uh, Probably the wise and well-off in Israel who had the means and motivation to seek and strive for the kinds of achievements accomplishments and life outcomes that Solomon recounted in his narrative. And there are other indications, too. There's a lot of advice on how to approach the king. Well, you know, the approach to your average Israelite peasant would be, well, you're not going to approach the king anyway, so no, never mind. But these were people who might have an audience with the king who perhaps were in high circles. Um, So today, though... um, hypothetically possible that any one of us might have an audience with the president. He does meet with normal people. Um, So Western capitalism culture have greatly expanded this audience. That is neither a criticism uh, nor a a praise of capitalism. It's just a fact. Uh, It certainly applies to all of us here today. All of us has the means (coughs) and the necessary uh, social position and live in a culture in which achievement and great wealth are, are literally possible for anybody. Um, so we, we are in the audience today. Um, key words and phrases, and here I'm going to start to slow down a bit because we're kind of getting to the text. So I've mentioned Hebel. That occurs 35 times. And... It's, it's a question of scholarship whether should it actually be translated the same way every time. Well, I say yes because it is the same Hebrew word every time <coughs> within the same book written by the same person. But it doesn't – there's such a thing as a denotative meaning and there's such a thing as a connotative meaning. Connotation is like – I was going to use an analogy that requires an analogy um, – that's not going to work. Well, a shadow has two parts, an umbra and a penumbra. The umbra is the really dark part. The penumbra is the lighter part on the edge. On a clear day, you know, see something with a distinct shadow and you'll see it. And so there are within the penumbra <coughs> of the word hebel various uh, connotations. The word literally means breath or vapor, like when James said mist. You're just a breath, a vapor, a mist. But it can connote or imply something fleeting, futile, frustrating, pointless, or absurd. The nuance of meaning for Hebel is captured in the context of the passage. It's translated meaningless in the NIV um, and vanity in the ESV. But it has many nuances of meaning. It, it, It fleeting, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. It passes quickly. Frustrating. Something that yields no result for the amount of effort, like beating, well, beating your head against a brick wall will affect you, but not going to do anything to the brick wall. 
Um, and even absurd. This just makes no sense. This shouldn't be. It's senseless. Under the sun occurs 25 times. Under the sun uh, doesn't mean just, you know, out in the hot sun working all day. It refers to earthly life lived between the boundaries of birth and death. So except for the few people who were translated, Enoch, um, Elijah, I can't think of anybody else. Um, And those of us who are alive when Jesus comes back, in which case we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everybody lives life between these two boundaries. You're born and eventually you die. But it also means life with no immediate or vital connection to eternity or transcendent reality. Those of you who... uh, I've talked about it before in some context. Uh, If you've read Charles Taylor's Secular Age, it's what he calls the imminent frame, which you could call it secularity if you want. Uh, This is life without reference to anything beyond this life. And no vital connection to eternity or transcendent reality. Chasing after the wind occurs nine times. And that's just such an apt metaphor that I hardly have to explain it, but, but I will anyway. A symbol for futility. Uh, I mean, who can catch the wind? Um, the paradi- this is the paradynamic metaphor for goals, projects, and endeavors that ultimately reward us only with emptiness even if you complete them successfully. Because futility is a little bit different from frustration. Um, The overarching theme is the world is never enough. No matter what you do, no matter what you accomplish, no matter how rich you get, you're not going to achieve any lasting meaning. That's what he means by meaningless, meaningless. Uh, Anything of lasting value simply by what you can do in this life. And he means nothing, not fame, family, fortune, or family. Um, it's possible to make an idol of the family. Don't mistake me. I, I just I think having the family I have is like one of the greatest things in my life that I truly, truly enjoy. Well, some of those relatives out there on the periphery, you know what I mean by that, but you know, they're but, you know, my immediate family, and my grandchildren, and my daughter and her husband. Uh, I'm blessed with a really good son-in-law. Um, but even that is, if, if, if all there is is what's in this life, well, then you die and that's it. It's done. So the world is never enough. Eternity or transcendent reality cannot be attained by anything we might accomplish in life under the sun. The meaning to life in this world cannot be found in this world. Now what that means is, of course, we find the meaning of life in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is literally from out of this world. So we didn't find it in this world. It had to come from us, from the the transcendent realm, from heaven. No human achievement can yield lasting value or everlasting word. It won't make a dent in the universe. That phrase comes from the biography of Stephen Jobs, who was once talking to his possible successor, 
and I forget who followed up as the CEO of Apple, who was then the CEO of, I think PepsiCo, but I'm not sure. But anyway, it was a soft drink company. And so Jobs asked him, what do you want to do? Do you, do you just want to make you know, sugary sodas or do you want to make a dent in the universe? You know, I like my smartphone. It's, it's not an iPhone. I like computers, they're useful. Uh, but they don't make a dent in the universe either. Um, only God can make a dent in the universe. So nothing you do will yield lasting value or everlasting reward. I spent way too much time on a visualization of this, but as they say, <coughs> one meme is worth a thousand words. So here's your life. Enjoy it while you can, but all your efforts will just <laughs> lead into a frightening plunge into darkness and emptiness. No, that's... <clears throat> I have a theory about death that I won't go into, but... I ask me sometime, I believe you actually wake up at the resurrection instantaneously after you die because time is malleable. So this applies, again, only under the sun. If you have no reference or vital connection to eternity or transcendent reality. Second, this is a weary and worn out world. Um, so our mission statement is declaring, what is it, declaring God's grace or the finished work of Christ to a worn-out world. Uh, and uh, Ecclesiastes will give meaning to that phrase, worn out. Solomon paints us a picture of the tragic effects of the fall. This world and human life are subject to futility, frustration, and dissatisfaction. So if you feel that way sometimes, well, welcome, welcome to our world, uh, a fallen world. We are captives on the carousel of life and time. Those of us of a certain age will recognize that phrase from a song by Joni Mitchell called Circle Game, uh, originally made famous by Judy Collins. Anyway, the chorus goes, and the seasons, they go round and round. And the painted ponies go up and down. We're captive on the carousel of time. We can't return. We can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round in the circle game. Now, in the last uh, verse, uh, Joni Mitchell tries to put a positive spin on this. I would call it less than successful. So she should have... She should have stuck with the theme and then accepted Jesus at the end, but that's not what happened. Um, anyway, our lives cycle through repetitive rounds of personal experience and social routine. Uh, there is truly nothing new under the sun when you think of it, and we'll get to that too. No level of achievement or pleasure can lift us from uh, the plane of existence that begins with birth and ends with death. We may enjoy life when we can. And Solomon is going to say, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, enjoy your life, um, particularly if they're good and innocent pleasures. There's really nothing wrong with it at all. Um, my, a long delayed because he was ill, but my daughter had a birthday party for my son-in-law, uh, and that was fun, chatting with people. Um, watching him eat all the tiramisu that my daughter made for him. 
But life's pleasures are always fleeting. Um, Eternity beckons but eludes us. We sense within ourselves that we are made for more than the transitory lives we lead. We listen to a lot of the popular songs about love, eternal love, I'll love you till eternity, etc., etc. We long for lasting love, meaning, and value, yet we can never grasp them. Death awaits us all. Hate to be a buzzkill, but... Death intrudes on and eventually ends all our best laid plans. Much of what we do with our lives serves only to distract us from the dark doorway of death at the end of the short hallway of life. There is actually only one thing certain in life. There are such things as tax shelters. There are no death shelters. Well, again, that's with reference to this world only. There really is a death shelter in Jesus Christ. Um, But again, this is the preamble and a prelude to the gospel. Finally... Remember your creator and fear God. Now, Solomon is not going to present to us the full, complete, revealed gospel because, well, history isn't there yet when he wrote this around 1000 B.C. But he does remind us if we forget God, anything else we do is just killing time. That seems a good place to stop, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, Next week, we'll begin developing and explaining these themes one by one. But, uh, very quickly, what kind of questions might you have so far at this point? Anybody? Paul, and then... (coughs) What I have read, so do authors, uh, do uh, scholars who dispute um, Solomonic authorship, uh, what they will say is that the accumulated... Uh, history of it, the redaction history, to use a technical term. Um, they, are, they are trying to use Solomon to sort of lend credence to this. Um, even some very conservative scholars, they might not necessarily buy into that, but a lot of them do. The issue is mainly with supposedly the history of the, uh, of the Hebrew language, which I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Dr. Garrett is, so I rely on him. Um, But I do know something of the difficulty of placing any document in a specific time period due to the peculiarities of its language. On the other hand, some of that is valid, so there has to be a counter-argument. You know, if you found a document now and it wasn't literally, if if you believe there were other reasons it was an ancient document, and it read like a Shakespeare play in the original, or the original King James. If, if you've, most of us have never read an original King James. You know, read the 1611 version. It's just not like our English, and it's not like even the King James English today. It is possible, but when you go back thousands, thousands, thousands of years. So the positing is, I hate to use the term pious fraud, but that's not usually applied to canonical literature. That's usually applied to intertestamental literature. But they're using, or without using the name of Solomon, because it's true his name isn't used, um, it is in Song of Solomon, uh, they're trying to sort of, you know, lend his aura to it. So whoever wrote it, yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Um, I just think Solomon wrote it myself. And that is the traditional ascription.
Yes. Uh, mine was long, along the lines of that. Do, does it really make any difference whether we know who wrote it or not wrote it? Because the words were, in, were God-inspired no matter what. Right. Correct? Well, does it make any difference if we know who wrote it? It, it depends. Uh, like, for example, some words that have absolutely no authorship attached to them at all, first and second Chronicles, first and second Kings, we have no idea who wrote that. The book of Hebrews, as the theologian origin said, uh, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, with Ecclesiastes, I think it's a little different because even though it doesn't mention Solomon, it's obviously about some great king who ruled in Jerusalem who is wider, richer, more accomplished than any other king ever. Like I say, it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. So the question is, um, if we're talking about inventing a character to deliberately make it look like Solomon to lend credence to the book, you know, I would, I would say, well, then, well, why would God do that? And so even if it is not the intention of some, because there are some conservative scholars who, you know, dispute Solomonic authorship. So why would God do that um, with inspired <laughs> literature to try and make it look like something else? So that's a really good question. You're, you're, you're asking a question for a seminary class. And I admit I'm not completely prepared to give a lengthy answer to that. Um, I think Solomon wrote it, and I usually, well, almost always, accept tradition, traditional description, unless there are really good reasons not to. Like, for a long time, the letter of Hebrews was ascribed to Paul. It doesn't sound like Paul. It doesn't look like Paul. It was never ascribed to Paul early. Got a late ascription to Paul. So, and it makes no difference because nowhere in there is there any historical identifying markers nor any names that indicate Paul wrote it. So there it doesn't make any difference. With Ecclesiastes, I would say it does. So it depends on the book. Now with Song of Solomon, I think Solomon wrote that too. By the way, if, this, if you find this tedious, remember you, you brought it up. Okay. <laughs> with the Song of Solomon... I think it makes less of a difference because it's the, the title is, is the Song of Song, which is Solomon's, or that pertains to Solomon's. And it's quite possible, I don't think so, that this was somebody writing about stories with Solomon as a character because we aren't really supposed to read Song of Solomon as a historical narrative. It's, it's like an album of, of you know, hit love songs. Um, and I'm serious about that. It really is a collection of love songs. So with there, it makes less difference. But with Ecclesiastes, if Solomon didn't write it, I don't. If it wasn't the belief that Solomon wrote it, it I don't think it would have ever gotten into the canon anyway, because it's so controversial. I mean, what do you do with the book that starts out? By the way, everything in life is meaningless. You know, no prophet ever said that. It's not in Proverbs. Matter of fact, it's nowhere else other than, well, that little sliver of verse in Paul and, and James says, well, you're just a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But it's so unique and jarring. If Solomon didn't write it, I don't think it would have ever gotten into the canon myself. Now, a lot of that I just said was opinion. <laughs> 
I think it's informed opinion, but it's still you you get you get the opposite side too. Um, anyway, any other questions about? Um, I've pretty much exhausted my knowledge of the textual history of and questions of authorship of Song of Solomon. Anybody have any more other questions? Okay, well, we'll, we'll pick up next week with um, the world goes round and round and where it stops, nobody knows, um, really. Uh, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>